You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Invite to turn with me in your Bibles, and we'll read together from Hebrews chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7, looking this morning at uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. So I'm going to read, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. The text that I want to focus on is uh, chapter 7, verse 25. But let's back up and read from verse 22. So Hebrews 7, 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Uh, Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as we come before you now that we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in heaven, who lives to make intercession for us. Father, we're thankful that we have been able to sing this morning of the great hope that we have because of the perfect work that Jesus has done for us. We confess freely, Lord, that in ourselves there is no good thing. We are an unclean and unworthy people deserving only to be cast out of your presence, to be permanently destroyed in the lake of fire. But how we thank you and praise you this morning, O God, that we have a Redeemer, that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross for us, and that he, who is altogether lovely, has fully paid the price for our sins. And so, our Father, we pray this morning, would you please help us to understand your word and to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, as he speaks to his people. Lord, this is your congregation, these are your people, your flock. Would you feed them? Lord, I pray that you would help me, that you would use me in spite of me, that Jesus Christ, who is so worthy, would get his reward this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the spirit in the passage we're looking at is uh, comparing the priesthood of our Lord Jesus with the Levitical priesthood. And he's emphasizing, as Hebrews does, that Jesus is a better priest. One of the reasons that he is a better priest is because he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Unlike the priests of the past, he never dies. In those days, of course, there were many priests, and the reason for that is because when one died, that priest would then have to be replaced by another one. But our Savior continues forever. And so God says here, in verse 25, Consequently, He is able to save 
to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now he's going to explain in this text, there's an explanation. We'll get to that in a minute. In the text, there's an explanation as to why he's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. But I just want to take a moment first by way of introduction to talk about and look at with you what it is that he is saying here when he says he is able to save to the uttermost. Well, first of all, what God is saying, what the author of Hebrews is saying, the Apostle Paul, I believe, is saying is that Jesus Christ is a actually able to save. We know that the Old Testament priests could not do that. They did not have the ability to save a man, to save a soul. They could point the people in the right direction. They could tell them about the one who was coming, who was able to save. But they were sinners themselves. So we read that they actually had to first offer sacrifices for their own sins before offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. So they were not in any position to rescue sinners from their sin. But Jesus Christ is able to save sinners. The Bible tells us that he is given the name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 3, verse 24 says that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Hebrews 1, the author is talking about Jesus. He says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the first thing we see, and, and that the, the author is clear about this, is that Jesus Christ is able to save. Well, who is He able to save? Well, in some translations, the wording is put like this, all who come to God by Him. All who come to God by Him. And by putting it that way, it's not as if the Apostle Paul is saying or that he hasn't the power to save others. God has put it like this to drive home to us that this is a free and a perfect offer. So his ability to save extends to anyone at all who comes to God by him. No exceptions. And the wording then must not be understood in any way as a limitation uh, to his ability. There is nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ that is lacking. The lacking is on our side. But the promise here is that he is able to save all who come. We have to understand in that context that it is, remember the scripture teaches us that it is our righteousness that is filthy rags. God is very well aware of the problem. Your weakness, my weakness, your sin, my sin, your inability, my inability, that's the point. But Jesus Christ is holy, harmless, and undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. You are unrighteous, but His name is the Lord our righteousness. So in Jesus Christ is an answer 
to everything that is lacking in you. That's why he came into the world. And now God is saying, in coming, he has done what no other priest could possibly do. He who is the brightness of God's glory has offered up himself once for all. And not like the the priests of old who came in with the blood of bulls and goats and did it over and over again, but once. Offering his own blood. Because when he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, he finished the work. The Lord, the Bible says, laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it pleased God. Isaiah puts it so gloriously. He says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says this. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an ephor sprinkling them clean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now what about this word uttermost? We've read here that he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? But what the author is saying is that Jesus, in saving sinners, saves them forever. He saves them forever. I want you to think about that for a moment. No matter how good your doctor, even in the physical realm, he cannot do anything like that. He can never save you, heal you forever. You come to him and he can sometimes, with the right medicine or the proper procedure, make you well for a while. But you know there's never a guarantee that the disease is not going to come back. And the doctor knows as well as you know that even with all the medicine and all the procedures in the world, your body eventually is going to die. You may get well, but one day you will die. But here, God is telling you, is a physician that is able to save body and soul. And when he saves, he saves forever. So you come to God by him. There's the offer. There's the the open invitation. All who come to God by him. You come to God by him, by Jesus Christ. And the salvation that he gives you freely is not temporary, but forever. It's eternal. And so you may be prone to wander as we sing, but he will keep you. The question then that that brings to mind is how that can be. If you know yourself as you're growing, as the years go by, and you see more and more of your sin, the question has to be, how can it be? How can it possibly be that this wretched man, that wretched woman, can be kept secure, can be saved forever. How is it that Jesus can save to the uttermost all, all who come to God by him? And the answer is, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, before he left the world, he promised the disciples, he said, I will pray the Father. I will not leave you comfortless. Or as some translations put it, I will not leave you orphans. And that's what Jesus Christ has gone to do. He's gone to pray for us, to speak for us, if you prefer to put it that way. So what I want to do this morning is look first of all with you at what Jesus says as he intercedes for us. So first of all, what Jesus says as he intercedes, 
And then second, I want to look with you at the difference between his praying, his asking, and the praying or asking of the priests, the Levitical priests of old. So first of all, what does Jesus say as he prays to the Father? As he intercedes right now in heaven. Well, there is a text in the Scripture that gives us a, a, a glimpse. And that passage is John 17. You're welcome if you'd like to open your Bible there and, and look at it with me. Um, or you can just listen. John 17. So John 17. begins in verse 1, he asks the Father to glorify Him that He may glorify the Father. And then in verse 2, he reminds the Father of His eternal purpose. What was His eternal purpose? It was that Jesus should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. That was the purpose. So he's telling the Father... You gave me a work to do, but you also gave me a people. You gave me a work, but you also gave me a people. You sent me to give unto them eternal life. As if saying to the Father, Father, this was your plan. This is what we agreed to. That I would come for them, and in coming for them, I would give to them eternal life. The Father had said, ask of me and I will give the nations. I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And so here Jesus is asking for that. That from every tribe and every tongue, from every nation, those whom the Father had given to him would be given eternal life. I love the way that John Flavel, a Puritan, John Flavel, John Flavel, he, uh, he put this as a hypothetical conversation. He imagined a conversation between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world as they considered this massive humanity, this sinful world, and specifically as they considered the elect. So I want you to listen to John Flavel, how he put the conversation, this hypothetical conversation between the Father and his Son as they considered the elect. The father begins, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. The son responds, oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Bring them all in, that there be no after-reckonings with them. At my hands shall thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatement. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, content, father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, I am content to take it. It's a beautiful picture of the Father's love and the Son's love for His people. And I want you to then to look at how He reasons in John 17, verse 6. He says twice, you gave them to me. But before that, there was something else that was true. And that was that they were yours. He says, thine they were. 
So the Lord Jesus, you see, He's reasoning with the Father. He's telling them, Father, they weren't first mine. They were yours first. You have loved them with an everlasting love. They are your sheep. But our Savior, as He reasons with the Father on our behalf, reminds Him not only that they were yours, not only that they were the Father's, but you gave them to me. And as you go through the prayer, the prayer in John 17, it's amazing how often Jesus uses that word. He tells the Father, you gave them to me in verse 2, in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 24, over and over again. You gave them to me. What's he saying? Father, they're yours. But you gave them to me. They're also mine. And why is it that the Father gave them to the Son? He gave them to the Son so that the Son could give to them eternal life. So do you see what the Son is saying as He speaks to the Father, as He intercedes for us? He's reasoning with the Father. You know how the Isaiah, in Isaiah He puts it, He says to us, come let us reason together. Well here the Son is reasoning with the Father. He's saying to Him, they are your people. You love them, but you also gave them to Me. And I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. Not so that they would perish. Not so that they would go on in unbelief. Not so that having begun well, they would make shipwreck of their faith, but that, so that they would have everlasting life. Notice too how he tells the Father about his own work. You see, this is the difference between Jesus, our advocate, our, in, our interceder, and Satan, our accuser. Satan comes and he says, look what he did. Did you hear what he said yesterday? Did you watch her yesterday? Jesus says, look at me. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. In other words, they may not glorify you, but I have glorified you. They haven't obeyed. But I have obeyed. They have sinned, but I bore their sins in my body. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And then we read in this, in this prayer, he goes on to pray for unity, to pray that God would sanctify us by the truth, all of this being part of the eternal life that Jesus was sent to give to those the Father had given him. But there's more. Toward the end of that passage, Jesus gets to something. Ultimately, what is it the Son would have from the Father? What is it ultimately the Son wants? As they had this, this fictional conversation, they, they made this plan from all eternity to save these people. What is it the Father wants? What is it the Son wants? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, He's a groom. He has a bride. And he, the groom, is in glory and his bride is here on earth. And he loves her. And he wants her to be with him. And so he says to the Father, Father, I will that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Isn't that wonderful? Your Savior, as He stands before the Father, tells Him, I want her, I want Him to be with me where I am. Now it may be that by the work of God's grace in your life, you've found yourself praying at times, specifically maybe in dark times, in hard times, praying that He would come quickly looking to the heavens for the return of Jesus and yearning for Him. You've longed to see Him. Perhaps some of you have wished that you, like Mary, could wash His feet with your tears. But I also suspect that at times you've wondered, as you've considered yourself, truly, how dare I, worm as I am, Hope for such a thing as that. 
And yet there is Jesus Christ, aware, aware, fully aware of all your weakness, fully aware of all your sin, having paid for it at the cross, lovingly telling the Father, I want them to be with me. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to look at with you this morning is the difference between the intercessory ministry of the Levitical priests and the intercessory ministry of Jesus. So what's the difference between the intercessory praying ministry of the Levitical priests and the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ? And I just want to name five differences. The five differences. First of all, Jesus, unlike them, intercedes with perfect wisdom. He prays with perfect wisdom, which is to say he knows just what to ask. He knows exactly what is needed. The priests of old, of course, had limited understanding and they had limited wisdom. And you can relate to that, can't you? Because you also have limited understanding and limited wisdom. And as you go to pray, there are many times when you don't know what to pray. We've all been in that place where we've gone to pray. We don't know how to pray, what to pray. And yet we've gone to the prayer closet with the promise of Romans chapter 8 that all things work how for good to those that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. And we cling to that promise. Well, how is that possible? How can it be that all, all, not most or many, but all things, how can they all work for good? For your good, specifically. And we know part of the answer, of course, is the great sovereignty of God over all things. But part of the answer is the faithful intercessory ministry of your high priest, your Savior, who goes before the Father to speak for you, knowing exactly what is needed. Many times I have been perplexed as I have gone to the throne of grace, and yet I've been comforted by the knowledge that Jesus Christ is there praying for me. And should I ask for something foolish, he is wise to ask something better. The second, that's the first, that Jesus intercedes with perfect wisdom. The second is that Jesus intercedes with perfect righteousness. He intercedes with perfect righteousness. It isn't only that Jesus can tell the Father, thine they were, they were yours, and you gave them to me. It's not only that he can speak to the Father, of the Father's eternal purpose. But He comes before the Father and His hands are clean. Remember that God said the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then the text tells us about a man who was righteous. Though you and I know that he wasn't blameless. And that man was Elijah. Elijah was a righteous man, we're told, and he prayed earnestly and prayed earnestly specifically that it would not rain. And in answer to that prayer, it did not rain for the space of three years and six months. Now we know, we read the text of Scripture, that the priests of old were supposed to be righteous men. They were supposed to be godly men. But there was always something lacking in them, as there's something lacking in me, and something lacking in every one of you. So they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. But was there ever a righteous man like Jesus? You know the answer to that question. Unlike Elijah, Jesus was, and we read it here in this text, holy, harmless, undefiled. He was unspotted by unrighteousness, unspotted by the world, unmarred by the filth of everything in this world. His meat and his drink was to do the Father's will, and his Father said of him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Think what joy the Son must have given to his Father as he walked through this earth, obeying every one of the commandments without fail, perfectly. Loving God with all of his heart, soul, and mind, loving his neighbor as himself, but not only did Jesus obey the Father in His life, He obeyed Him also in His death. He went to the cross. And remember how 
Jesus had agonized in the garden. And he said to the Father, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And he knew exactly what it would mean to drink it. And yet he took that cup and he drank it. He drank it for me. He drank it for you. And he suffered there at the cross the agonies of hell. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And now, as he speaks for us, it is as if he says to the Father, Father, look at these hands. Look at these feet. I suffered there for them. I took their sins. I bore their punishment. And I did that so that they might have eternal life. I want them to appear with me in glory. And I assure you that in heaven, God hears the prayers of that truly righteous man. And those prayers avail much. When Jesus asks, he is always heard. The third thing is that Jesus, the third difference, Jesus intercedes for every one of his sheep. So unlike the Old Testament priests, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, intercedes for every one of his sheep. You know, I like to think of the high priest, and the Bible tells us that he would bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. It was symbolic. And he would bear their names as he went into the holy place. But if you think about it, could the priests really effectively pray for every one of the Israelites by name? And if they did manage to mention their names in prayer, would they have known what to ask for? Well, Mark Jones has said that there is no Christian alive, there is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. Isn't that something? So personal. There in glory, Jesus bears the names of the children of Israel upon his heart. Listen to me. He speaks for you. I think we sometimes think of it as if Jesus were there in heaven at the right hand of God speaking for some nameless aggregate. No, he speaks for you. He bears your name upon his heart. You know, I find it so reassuring, I'm sure you do too, when you're told that somebody's praying for you. Isn't that encouraging to know the saints are praying for you? No, to know that a brother or sister in Christ, as they bow before God, they get down on their knees and they pray that they mention you by name. That's encouraging, isn't it? But think what it must be to hear the Lamb of God mentioning you to His Father by name. And how very different it is for for Jesus to intercede for you than it is for your family members and your friends to intercede for you. And why do I say that? Well, they surely love you, but He has loved you with an everlasting love. And He knows you like they could never know you. He knows not only what you put on as you come to church, what, not only how you present to others, but he knows it all, every last bit, every dark spot. He knows your frame, that you are but dust. And the Bible says, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities you. And there in that place of glorious communion, as he goes before a well-pleased father, he presents himself with Nail-scarred hands and feet, and he speaks for his people by name. You know, the Bible says, he says to those, to his people who thought he had forgotten, he says to them, Behold, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. A nursing mother may forget her child, but I will never forget you. Congregation, Jesus remembers your sorrows. He knows your fears. He understands your weakness. He knows your sin. Your tears have all been put in his bottle. 
as the psalmist says, and he goes then with that perfect knowledge, knowing all of that, to speak for you and to remind the Father that he went to the cross for you. Number four, the fourth difference. Jesus Christ intercedes with holy compassion. He intercedes with holy compassion. Hebrews 5 tells us that the priests were supposed to be men with compassion. And of course, you can, I expect, relate to this because if you are going to have a pastor, you want that pastor to have compassion for you. And of course, some of these men had more compassion than others. But there was a limit to their capacity to have compassion. They were sinful men. They were finite men. But our Savior is not marked by the same weakness. And as you go through the Gospels, you will find that no emotion is more commonly attributed to Jesus Christ than this. Again and again and again, we read that he had compassion. He had compassion. While he was here, he prayed with strong crying and tears. So his prayers were not heartless, mechanical prayers like the prayers of so many. He prayed like no man ever before. He prayed like no man ever since. He prayed with love that passes all understanding. Which explains the strong crying and tears while he was in this world. And you know, while he has gone to be with the Father, he has not changed. So he may not now plead with tears, but he speaks to the Father on your behalf with the same compassion. He's gracious. He is the Savior of sinners. And there as he intercedes for you, it is with the same compassion that so marked his life while he was here on earth. Thomas Goodwin said, your very sins, Christian, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. And you know, I think if Jesus were walking here on this earth, if we could imagine that, as he did 2,000 years ago, and we have this idea of what Jesus was like when he was here. I think many of us would probably very eagerly go to him, wouldn't we? Probably more quickly, more eagerly than we do to our prayer closets. And we would go to them to tell him our troubles. We would go to tell him what was the matter, what we needed, to tell him our heart, to tell him what we need for help. And why would we go to Jesus so quickly? if he were walking this earth? I think the answer is because we've read the Scriptures. We understand what kind of man he is. We know exactly how he dealt with the sick and the crippled and the possessed and the children and the babies and the sinners. You know very well that it was the religious leaders and the self-righteous disciples who were for turning people away. But it was Jesus always, ever the same, always for receiving, always saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It was Jesus always having compassion, sometimes weeping with those who wept, sometimes deeply moved because touched with the feeling of their infirmities. And he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He isn't walking among us now as he walked then. But he said, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He's gone to the Father to carry on his work. There at the cross it was finished, but now he intercedes. He speaks as our advocate. And it's just because we have such a great high priest that we can then go as a Bible urges us boldly to a throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in our time of need, particularly, specifically when that need is our sin. Brothers and sisters, think with me. We can go as we go to a throne of grace where others never dared to go, never dreamed of going. At any time, in any place, we can be like Mary at the feet of Jesus. At any time, at any place, we don't have to sit by the side of a road and wait, hoping that the Savior will pass us by, but we can at any time, 
Go to him like the blind men and say, Lord, I want to see. In fact, we are actually urged, God urges us to do that very thing, to come boldly because we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who is moved with compassion at the sight of a sinner and who compassionately prays for us. Well, the fifth thing, the last thing, the last difference is that Jesus intercedes unceasingly. He intercedes unceasingly. Other priests, the Old Testament priests, of course, well, they're finite men. Not only finite men, they died. They came and they went. The Lord Jesus Christ lives forever. He was speaking to the Father on your behalf before you were born. He was speaking to the Father on your behalf when you were mired in sin. He speaks to the Father for you today. Whereas the other priests would grow weary and sleep, he who keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. A number of years ago, I was at a conference and group of young people were there and I had spoken to them and one young person came to me deeply deeply troubled about his soul and we had spoken for a while and then I left him to pray as I went to my room it was late at night I was burdened for him and praying for him but I was also very tired and I eventually decided I just needed to sleep but what comforted me as I put my head on my pillow was the knowledge that as I was sleeping, the Lord Jesus Christ would speak for him. I could not pray, but Jesus would pray. He ever lives to intercede. He never grows weary. He never sleeps, but he continues to speak on behalf of his bride, reminding the Father, look what I've done. I want them to appear with me in glory. Reminding the Father not what you've done. Reminding the Father what He's done. And we should glory, Christians, we should glory in this. That Jesus, our great high priest, ever lives to intercede. That as you go to your bed at night, you can say, I laid me down and slept. I awake for the Lord sustained me. And there even in your sleep is one who speaks to the Father for you. You know, I, I've just scratched the surface of this, but I want to then, lastly and briefly, give you three words of application. So three words of application. Number one, Jesus saves sinners, and he saves them completely. Jesus saves sinners, and he saves them completely. You know, whoever you are, Whoever you are, whatever you have done, Jesus is able and willing to save you. That alone should make our hearts soar with rejoicing. The Bible says that Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. And in giving himself for us, all our sins, past, present, and future were laid on him, all of them. So that as John Flavel put it in that Puritan English, there would be no after reckonings. So that the father would not come later and say, well, what about that sin? So that the accuser could not say, well, what about this sin? The whole lot, the whole death has been laid upon the Lord Jesus, all of it now his, not yours to answer for. Do you see what he's done? It's Christ who answers for your sin, not me, not you. And that which God lays on him shall never be taken off. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And bearing our sins, he made full satisfaction unto God the Father, so that God is honored. I've dishonored him. You've dishonored him. But Christ has honored him. And he is satisfied. So that no more demands can be made upon us. None. 
William Bridge said that he was so fully satisfied that he looked for iniquity and he found none. He looked over all his books to see if he could find anything upon the score, but he found none. All our debts were paid. And not only has he made full satisfaction for our sins, he's taken them away. He's removed them from us. He's buried them in the deepest sea where he remembers them no more. And so now he appears for us in heaven, owning our cause and our souls to the Father. Again, as William Bridge said, we have a friend in heaven. We may not have a friend here on earth, but we have a friend in heaven that will appear for us and he will own our cause and our souls and in all conditions, in all conditions appear for us. So are you here this morning without Christ? Is there one soul, one person here without Jesus, still mired in sin? Come to Him. That's the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Christ died for sinners, and why not for you? His promise to those who come to him is that he will not turn any away. To those who complain that they are sick, sin sick, his answer is that he is a physician who comes for sick. To those who complain that they're sinners, he answers that he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. The second application, word of application is this, whereas Satan accuses the brethren, Jesus speaks as their advocate. I've already alluded to this, but I want you to remember this, that we have an advocate in heaven. I love that word. It's a glorious word. We have someone to represent us, to speak for us, an advocate with the Father, so that when we have failed Him, as we do, as you will today, as you will again tomorrow, we need not despair, because Satan would love for you to despair. So let me put to you a very personal question. Are you troubled today with the burden of sin? Anyone here troubled by the burden of sin, your sin? Maybe you have done something as a Christian, of all things, as a Christian, in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of all that you know. And Satan has been accusing you, and you wonder now, can there be mercy and hope for me? Of course, Satan comes to accuse and to remind you again and again of what you have done to suggest to you there's no hope, to suggest to you that it's one too many sins. But now there is the Lord Jesus Christ, your great high priest, at the right hand of the Father. And he reminds the Father, not what you've done, but what he's done. I've quoted from William Bridge before, but I want to quote him one more time. I love the way he puts this to speak of Jesus Christ speaking for us. He says he takes up the cause and he answers the accusation. So Satan accuses, Jesus answers. And this is how he supposes Jesus answers. True Lord, this poor soul indeed has filthy garments. So yes, yes, they're a mess. Yet I will give him a change of raiments and take away his filthy garments. You see what he's saying? Satan comes to say, look what she's done. Look what he did. Jesus comes to say, yes, that's, that's all true. Yes, he did do it. Yes, she did do it. But I will give him a change of clothing. I will take away the filthy garments. And so as the Puritan put it, let the world condemn. Let Moses condemn. Let Satan condemn. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father to take off all accusations that shall be raised against them. Lastly, if Jesus intercedes for so well for his own, and he does, 
we can be sure that the Father's will will be done. And I'm referring to something very specific when I say that. Jesus said in John chapter 6 this. He said, This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And so Satan may be prowling about, looking, looking to devour, looking for a weak believer to devour. He may want to pluck you from the Father's hand. He may tempt you to deny and to betray your faithful master. And it's possible, and listen, it's possible that Satan for a while may get his way in your life, but the Lord Jesus Christ shall lose nothing. Every last one of those whom the Father has given him will one day appear with him in glory. He will keep you. He will keep you. He who is able to save, saves to the uttermost all who come to God by Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, Again, we thank you so much for a great and faithful Savior. Thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ has finished what you have entrusted him to do. That he has made full satisfaction for our sins. And we thank you, O oh God, that he ever lives to intercede for his people. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes upon him that we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God in heaven, I pray for those who have come to this place today who are still without the Lord Jesus Christ, who are still mired in sin. Oh God, would you please set them free? Would you make this a day of salvation and rejoicing in heaven? And I pray, Father, for the saints, for those people whom you have saved by your grace particularly those who are discouraged, and perhaps any on the edge of despair. Father, would you remind them that you have an everlasting love. Remind them of the Lord Jesus Christ, their high priest, who faithfully makes intercession for them. Would you comfort them and encourage them? We ask, O oh God, that you would build us all up in our faith, that we would go from this place rejoicing, and our great Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.